<laughs> Welcome back to The Human Exception. This week, I take us on a whirlwind tour of the history of recipes. Humans have been playing with our food since the beginning of time, and we have been writing those experiments down since at least 1700 BC. Cookbooks tell us a lot about a people and the culture of the time. Also, they help us make delicious things. As always, expect foul language, and let's get ready for another Human Exception. Season four, let's go. <laughs> Season four, oh let's go. That oh feels so weird. Yep. Fine. Mm -hmm. I did have someone over the weekend um at that event, Kayla, that I was talking about. Um, she has her own podcast for authors and she was like, Well, I I like to ask people who seem like they're chatty and they they enjoy talking about their books and uh, she was like, have you ever been on a podcast before? And I kid you not, I started <laughs> laughing. <laughs> like once or twice. <laughs> I think she deals with largely people who don't. So it's a fair question. Um, I'm white. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very specific I was like, skill set. You have it, you have it, you don't, you don't. <laughs> and that skill set would be just the answer yes or no to if you have been on a podcast. Yeah. Exposure. <laughs> able to stare off into the distance and talk in a mic and track a conversation at the same time. Or that might just be Also me. the whole like being able to you know connect know the technical side as well and understanding what a mic is the buttons. and how to not yeah. like put your mic in your shirt or something <laughs> or your mouse. <laughs> That's Yep, that's fair. Yeah, nothing will make me run faster from a podcast than bad audio quality. I'm out immediately. <laughs> I could be forgiving of some bad audio quality, but to only a certain extent. <laughs> in the begin, especially when you're figuring shit out, like in the beginning, totally understand that. Like, I get it. Us, we would have no excuse. <laughs> yeah. With this many fair, episodes, yeah. we would have... No excuse. That Never would be... mind our like experience beforehand. <laughs> okay, evil has died, y'all. Evil just died. Evil? Who's evil? Henry Kissinger died. Holy oh. shit. Well, huh. I mean, he was a hundred. I... Wow. Evil lives that long. That's terrifying. Huh. For those of you who don't know who Henry Kissinger is, go listen to the six-part Behind the Bastards series on that fucker. <laughs> God, that's evil man. Evil man. Oh. Well, <laughs> that's one less douchebag in the world. Right? Ay, ay, ay. Taking them out one at a time. <laughs> <laughs> it just takes so damn long. Really Why? Anyways, sorry. I just saw the thing pop up on my monitor and I was like, oh, what? Usually when it's breaking news, it's like some sports team beat some other sports team. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's stuff you really care. care. Yeah. All right. How do we want to do this? Who wants to go first? Mm. You know, <laughs> I'll go whenever. I mean, I think we all. Kind of like that. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I want to go last this time because this okay. was a trip, and I still have to like organize my brain on this. <laughs> All right. Fuck. Okay. Well, I can I can kick us off. Hell yeah! With my usual meandering topics. <laughs> so yeah. Um. So went into this idea planning to cover just like one woman. And her contributions to like the culinary arts and 
Then I ended up mm-hmm. finding all sorts of fascinating stuff. And, well, here we are. And that's a hex topic in a nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess we'll start with this. I love to cook. And that hasn't always been the case. In fact, my interest in cooking was birthed almost out of spite. I grew up with my brother, my dad, and my grandmother. And my grandmother did all the cooking. And, well, I'm sure some of y'all's grandmothers are absolutely fabulous cooks. Mine was not. No. So she'd grown up during World War II on a, in a small farm in Germany, and her family struggled to keep food on the table, and sometimes that food that they had wasn't in the best state. But when that's what you have, you made do, and then you would proceed to cook it to absolute death. <laughs> so this was my grandmother's exposure to cooking. <laughs> oh, no. So when she came to Canada with my grandfather and they started their homestead, that is the skill she started with. Living off the land can be bountiful, and you get a good crop, you'll have more food than you could possibly ever eat. But when those crops fail, well, <laughs> not so much. Neither of my grandparents were ex- expert farmers, and the land that they ended up buying had very poor soil quality and was filled with rocks. So it was an uphill battle from the get-go. So my grandmother's ability to stretch food and make a way to eat even when the most with the most dubious crops, you know kept her my grandfather and my and their five children fed so by the time that my brother and i came into the picture the garden had been tilled and worked into a fully functional source of food there were orchards of fruit potatoes to last all seasons and so much lettuce that it was not humanly possible to consume it all and maybe we be behind my whole dislike of lettuce <laughs> but <laughs> Food was plentiful, that and she and my dad both brought in an income so they had access to the grocery store and all that that entailed. But my grandmother's cooking never really went beyond the war style cook everything to mush. My mother on the other hand was a good cook and while she wasn't really involved in our lives, when we did see her, the food was always memorable. And I couldn't understand how my grandmother and my mother could cook the same dish and have it taste so dramatically different. So then comes my entitled, privileged teenage ass complaining to my dad about my grandmother's cooking until one day he was like, if you don't like it, then you can cook. Oh, and shit. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure, especially my getting my, my meals were far from glamorous or delicious, but I took the challenge on. I ended up taking home act throughout high school and it taught me so much and food is something I've actively continued to learn about ever since. But before it sounds like I completely usurped my grandmother in the kitchen, I want to say that she was an excellent baker and she really enjoyed this. So me taking on the meals gave her a break from 50 plus years of cooking so she could just do what she really liked, which was making pies, breads, and all manner of cakes. There was always a coffee cake in the fridge and they were delicious. (laughs) So what the hell am I talking about? Well, we're going to talk about (laughs) the evolution of recipes. Nice. (laughs) Mm, Food. Yay, food. So, since life has existed on the planet, it has needed sustenance. That's just how we grow and function. Biology dictates this. The biology doesn't dictate that it has to taste good. At least not for the sake of our survival. We could put all of our required daily nutrition into a slurry and just drink that every day to get all our vitamins, minerals, and calories we need, but we don't. It's likely that at least since humans discovered fire, there have been attempts to make our food taste better. Like, hey, meat tastes bitter with a little char and you'll get, you're likely to get less sick. That's a win all around. Just got to figure that fire <laughs> thing out. <laughs> but of course, we can't prove that. But I could tell you that at least since 1700 BC, we've been mixing stuff together and cooking it in all sorts of ways just because it tasted good. So what I'm referring to is the Yale tablets, a set of three clay tablets from 1700 BC ancient Mesopotamia. They are the earliest recipes that we have found. And I have a picture of them. Oh, oh yeah. They're pretty neat looking. I am into this. From stone tablets to Julia Child. All right. <laughs> pretty much. Looks <laughs> um, like so cake. Nat- naturally, these tablets are super old. Some bits have broken off or worn away. But, you know, after much expert examination at the Yale University, we have a pretty good idea of what they said. The most intact of the tablets is more of a listing of ingredients that amounts to about 25 recipes of stews and broths. The other two contain an additional 10 plus recipes, go, going further in depth with the cooking instructions and presentation suggestions even. 
but those are broken. Those are broken and therefore not as legible. Ah, oh, dang it! I would have like that would have been cool. Like you must set the table with live ducks, or I don't know. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> These ducks are not to be cooked. They yeah, are <laughs> they are for the entertainment. <laughs> pet a duck, eat your dinner. Yeah. Don't give it bread. <laughs> right, frozen peas. Or fight it, fight it for bread. That's part of the entertainment. Fight it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> fight, to it fight. For bread. every month, only during the last Friday of the. <laughs> I don't know what month we will have the infamous duck fight. All right, I gotta stop. <laughs> the duck fight. Oh my god. <laughs> All right, yeah. So these tablets. They're fractured. They do tell us a lot, though. One being that ancient Mesopotamians recognized that different regions had their own cuisines. And as such, some of the recipes listed were marked as foreign. Not marked in a bad way. Just different in having been adapted to having local to local palates and ingredients. Mm. Um, one of the foreign dishes is called Elamite broth, which uses blood for the basis of the broth, which would be completely forbidden in Islamic and Jewish tradition today. Researchers believe this recipe originated from what is now Iran based on the use of dill, which was not used in any of the local recipes. In modern-day Iraq, which is where these tablets were found, dill is still not used frequently, but in neighboring Iran, it still plays a really big role. Which I find so cool that there's these, like, historical ingredients that we still use today <laughs> in certain areas. Hmm. Um, and that you could figure out where a recipe came from, potentially from that. So That's really cool. <laughs> as for local dishes one such recipe is a soup called uh pashradam. it appears that the soup was given to someone when they had a cold so this is the, the oldest school chicken noodle soup but without the chicken or the noodles <laughs> the recipe consists of a mild broth coriander onions and leek another is a soup called mm. tahu which is includes lamb onions beets coriander shallots cumin beer and more and there was even garnishment suggestions of finely chopped spring leek and coriander seeds coarsely crushed for the top. It's a possible predecessor to borscht. And another recipe oh. resembles a chicken pot pie with layers of dough and, and chunks of bird smothered by a sort of Babylonian bechamel sauce. Or bechamel sauce. Wow. wow. And like at 1700 BC, they were doing things like this. Which is bonkers. So... The recipe tells us that even 4,000 years ago, our ancestors used complex spice blends, used multiple ingredients and different textures and cooking methods to create a meal worthy of a king, just as these recipes were originally intended. The Yale team even went through and reproduced four of the recipes to great success, which is pretty cool, and I'll include a video in the show notes about it. So since then, cookbooks have provided a unique insight into the lives of people at the time, though if sometimes with a very narrow scope. So by the 1300s, cookbooks had become the norm for kings and nobles. For example, in 1390, Form of Curry, The Rules of Cookery, was published by published for King Richard II and contained recipes by the master cooks for the king and featured all of his favorite recipes. Now we've got a picture of the like Dang. plate cover. And the even predecessor the to the recipe blog without the ads. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh um, shit. And there's even Oh. Give me a second. Wow. I even have a link that has um a it has the uh pages, every page of the seventeen eighty version. Which is pretty cool. If you ever Yeah, like that is really that. that is really cool. Oh cool. Oh nice. Heck yeah. Form of curry. It, oh, this is great. <laughs> oh, so, Library of Congress. <laughs> so this cookbook utilizes a very large variety of Southern European cooking staples like saffron, sugar, almonds, and various pastas, making for quite a diverse selection. Obviously, though, it's important to remember that this decadence and variety came at a high cost to the lower class and who often were the ones farming and preparing such ingredients with little opportunity right. to indulge in them themselves. Hooray, feudal system. Yay. Yay. <laughs> so by the 15th century, mass printing had become more prevalent. And by the 17th century, public literacy had greatly increased, making the concept of buying and reading a cookbook a lot more accessible to the average person. 
though there were still significant differences between foods prepared depending on your class and cookbooks were targeted to specific audiences. The titles of cookbooks exemplified the role that they played in perpetuating social hierarchy between the rich and the poor, such as Plain Cookery for the Working Class, The Poor Man's Larder and Kitchen, 15 Cent Dinners for the Working Man's Family, to name a few. Whoa. On the other hand, recipes and books like Le Super de la Cour and Le Cuisinaire Bourgeois for the royals and aristocrats, as you can imagine. And ah, kind of... fancy language for a fancy man. Got it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So here's a picture <laughs> of uh, the interior of one of the working class books. Wow. In seventeen twenty. I wonder how long it took somebody to, to draw that. Yeah, that like, image. It's probably like a yeah. wooden a wood carving, maybe? Like a woodcut. Yeah. 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 It's so detailed and I mean really beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's no, a cat under the table. I just saw the cat. I didn't oh, yeah. that. Oh my god. There's a kitty there's cat, a cat, cat under the table. <laughs> it's the most important part of this whole picture. Of course, if your kitchen doesn't have a cat, where are the mice gonna go? <laughs> They're going to get in the flower. So in 1727, The Complete Housewife would be published and would also prove to be one of the first cookbooks also authored by a woman. And it's re-released in 1747 to be the first cookbook published in America. I've got the cover here for that, or the interior. And there's also a cat in this image, I noticed. (laughs) Hell yeah. Oh yeah, there is. Wow, The Complete Housewife. Wow, man. Whew, these letters. Oh. Yeah. Oh, what the f- it's making uh, my English degree itch. Yeah, it's, it's bad. <laughs> oh my god. Directions for marketing. Wow. <laughs> okay, that's that's pretty printed for it, and there's a bunch of dudes' names, I'm sure. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yep. So this contained the first published recipe for ketchup. Appears to be the earliest source of bread and butter pudding as well. The book includes recipes not only for foods, but for wines, coriol waters, medicines, and salves. The structure of the recipes is interesting as well. There are no lists of ingredients. These simply being mentioned as needed in the recipes as they come up. Most recipes do not even mention oven temperature, obviously, or cooking time. Recipes are described tersely and do not generally spell out the basic techniques, such as how to make pastry. So this one recipe here for the uh, Batalia pie does not mention pastry at all, though it is called for with the instructions saying, close the pie at the end. Is that because it would have been expected that someone would have had that knowledge already passed down? Yeah. Yes. Like, yeah. like an everybody knows kind of thing? Exactly. And like, I believe this woman had been um, like a, a, a housemaker or something as well. So it's like, okay, that would have been. They don't need that as well. Right. It's amazing how much that's changed. And now we have college kids who don't know how to use a microwave. So it's like <laughs> the. <laughs> it's, it I is say an that. advanced piece of technology and it's super are, hard to use. Okay. There are grown ass people who don't know how to use one. So there's, you know, I'm not knocking it any specific. But I do <laughs> notice, like, as time has gone on, it was, it, it is interesting to see the difference between, well, you have to know this or you're not going to eat to where we have access to everything now, so you don't actually need to ever touch an oven to be able yeah. to eat. As long as you have money, you can get food. Right, yeah. Um, so the recipes provided here are for homemade medicines and remedies such as to promote breeding for women wanting to become pregnant. The recipe calls for a spoonful of stinking orris, which I have no idea what that is, oh. syrup, to, and it's supposed to be taken night and morning. <laughs> Oh, I think and I for, know what that is. You didn't look really? that up. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to see if I was. Okay, I think I. Uh, this is hitting something in the memory banks, but I don't remember what it is exactly. Uh, I'll I'll see if I can find it. Okay. So yeah, I was thinking of a syrup to be taken night and morning, and for a good ale to be boiled with the pice of three oxbacks. Half, an, half a handful of clary and a handful of nep or cat boss, whatever that is, dates, raisins, Ugh. and nutmeg. And the woman drinking the mixture, mixture, this mixture is at your going to bed is enjoying 
as long as it lasts a company not with your husband so drink this before going to bed this weird mixture don't drink it with your husband it'll help you have babies <laughs> Ooh, okay <laughs> that stinging orus is gonna bother me now okay okay anyways <laughs> Books like this give us a unique insight into social expectations that the elf, the housewife mm -hmm. having to function as, which included chef, doctor, pharmacist, exterminator, chemist, laundress, and all-around handywoman. Mm -hmm. So then we get to the 1800, 1900s, where we have Eliza Acton and her book Modern Cookery. This, the first modern cookery writer and compiler recipes for the home was Eliza Acton and her pioneering cookbook, Modern Cookery, cookery for Private Families, which was published in 1845. It was aimed at the domestic reader rather than the professional cook or chef. The publication introduced the now universal practice of listing ingredients and suggested cooking times with each recipe. Also, I wanted to share that the uh, full name of the book was Modern Cookery, in all its branches, reduced to a system of easy practice for the use of private families in a series of practical receipts which have been strictly tested and are given with the most minute inexactness. That's a title. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> and now time to get to the person that I originally planned to do this whole thing about, and it's a woman named Fanny Merritt Farmer. I've got a picture of her. Um, so Fanny was born on March 23rd, 19, or 1857 in Boston. She was the eldest of four daughters in a family that placed great importance on education. Fanny had big dreams. She was bright and had a hunger for knowledge. And she had dreams of attending college and becoming a school teacher, one of the few professions that was available for women at the time. That was until at the age of 16, she suffered a paralytic stroke. Whoa. The stroke, the stroke left her unable to walk and she was forced to remain in the care of her family. The prevailing medical wisdom at the time dictated that she could not leave home or apply herself intellectually. <laughs> mm. But she was nothing if not determined. She worked hard to regain her ability to walk, and was she was successful, leaving her with only a limp in her left leg. But this healing process was not a quick one. There were many years where she was confined to the house, so she needed to do something to maintain her sanity. So she began to cook. Her mother ran a boarding house and Fanny began to cook meals for its residents and soon word got around about the quality of meals that she served. Fanny gaining quite the reputation. So at age 30, she enrolled in the Boston cooking school. This was the height of the domestic science movement, which is a really fascinating period of time. The school was founded as a philanthropic venture to enable women of modest means to find work as cooks in private homes and institutions. Its stated, its stated promise was to lift this great social incubus of bad cooking and its in incident evils from the households of the country at large. I'm going to have some interesting corollary with yours and mine, weirdly <laughs> enough. Talking about uh, weakness in women. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. That's a, the language tweaked my ear there for a second. So. <laughs> It's like, wait a second, I've read that line before. <laughs> so you might be wondering why there was a sudden need for a domestic science movement and that women suddenly needed to go to school to learn to cook. And it's a good question. And the Civil War played a big part. Do you want to guess why? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, everything changed <laughs> at that point. On top of just not having ingredients and there being deep rationing, shit was being set on fire in the South. That includes the fields. Yeah. So the big one. Oh, and was... also, you know, like they didn't have as many of slaves. That's it. That is it. <laughs> so yeah, 1865 was the abolishment of slavery. And so, so since like day one America, white folk have had slaves, especially those living in the South. They came to a continent to make a new country with slaves. By this point, we probably have a good half dozen generations in, and this entire time, many of those families had slaves. Slaves did a lot of things, and let's be honest, pretty much everything. So suddenly, the entire, this entire workforce had its well-deserved, long-overdue freedom. And much of America's economy at the time was being supported by slavery, whether it be the trade of slaves themselves, or the use of slaves as workers on plantations and other lines of work. 
This had a devastating impact on the men in many families, particularly those that had owned slaves. Their income plummeted and many were forced to declare bankruptcy. And it's pretty easy to see what the obvious impacts the men were. But this also had a huge impact on women who had never cared for their own house before, sometimes even their own children. They had never entered a kitchen or cleaned a dish or hung laundry to, to dry. The domestic sciences are often mocked and delegated to women, yet considered unimportant. But your life would fall apart pretty damn quickly if everything that entailed suddenly disappeared. <laughs> right. We take a lot of yeah. things for granted. We all have a pretty strong notion that living in a clean house is just a good idea. <laughs> but this was a time when the idea that the tiny microorganisms existed could make us sick was just laughable. You know, we call that germ theory now. <laughs> So imagine how fast things could go wrong when you le you're left to manage your household with absolutely no concept of what that actually entails. Mm -hmm. And all that, the fact that now your husband wasn't bringing in the money and you needed to find some way to help with that, but having no marketable skills other than drinking tea and gossiping, which mm -hmm. okay, that's probably an exaggeration, and, but and a little more than facetious, but you catch my drift. Most of these women yeah. had no skills. So women needed to learn a trade. They needed to learn how to care for their families and homes because God knows a man wasn't going to do that at the time. And thus was the rise of the domestic sciences. Now all of this did make people realize the value of knowledge that the African-American populace had in spades. And it led to careers for many black men and women taking on paid jobs to care for the homes of more well-off families. We even have our first co cookbook published by a black woman named Melinda Russell in 1866, just one year after abolishment. <laughs> Like wow. that's how desperate they were, wow. you know, at a time when, yeah. you know, yeah. you know, black people weren't allowed to even have basic rights, but okay, we need you to make a book because we don't know what the fuck we're doing. <laughs> right. Right. And here's, uh, here's the just interior cover of the book. I don't know why I find the book so fascinating. <laughs> no, I think these books are just, they're really interesting. You know, talk about its own time capsule. Yeah. Mm -hmm. huh. And as a fun little related aside, um, another book came out in 1874 to help with the sudden void of knowledge called Miss Beecher's Housekeeping and, he and Healthkeeper. This book was written by Catherine Beecher, the sister to abolitionist Harriet Beecher Stowe. So I Catherine was going to say, early... wait a second. Yeah. <laughs> so Catherine was an early feminist and advocate for women's education. She was at the forefront of the home economics movement, which sought to provide a scientific foundation for women's work in the home. Although Miss Beecher's Housekeeper and Healthkeeper contains more than 500 recipes and household hints, it is much more than a cookbook. Beecher devotes an entire chapter to the argument that it's more important for women to receive scientific education than men because their traditional roles as wife, mother, and homemaker directly affect the entire family. She includes chapters on the latest medical, chemical, and scientific advances as they relate to cooking and nutrition, including diagrams of the body's systems and discussions of cells and microscopy and the breakdown of the chemical comp compounds of food, which is pretty damn cool. So this, you know, Beecher family had a thing or two figured out. <laughs> it's like that's so ahead of its time. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, anyways, back to Fanny. So as post-Civil War institution founded by reformers and philanthropists, the school gave women a mod of modest means and entry into professional work at a time when more women needed employment and few had career options. With its emphasis on science and domestic domesticity, it provided upper-class women with what would have been perceived to be a respectable way to support themselves should they suffer a reversal in fortune. So among cooking, she learned about nutrition, diet, convalescent cooking, techniques of cleaning and sanitation, chemical analysis of food, techniques of cooking and baking and household management. Fanny was considered one of the top pupils, graduating in 1889 and staying on to a, as, as an assistant to the director only to become principal two years later. Hmm. And here's a picture of her teaching the students. You have no, I, I, I'm not gonna like spoil the whole thing. I know who Fanny Farmer is, so I'm like real <laughs> excited that you're doing this. It's like, yeah, that's pretty cool because my nerd ass self. <laughs> well, excellent. <laughs> uh, so yeah, 1896, Fanny would publish the Boston Cooking School Cookbook, a follow-up to the 1884 edition written by Mary J. Lincoln. No one expected much from this book. Even the publisher, Little Brown and Company, did not expect good sales. So they only printed 3,000 copies, completely at her expense. 
but it also meant that she got most of the, she kept to keep the rights and most of the profits which turned out to be a very good thing <laughs> but this wasn't any old cookbook over the years multiple editions would be published culminating in about 1800 recipes under fanny's direction on top of recipes the book included essays on housekeeping cleaning canning drying and nutritional information fanny's goal had been to create a book that anyone could follow and have consistent results in her preface fanny sums up her aim and her eventual achievement as it is my wish that the cookbook may not only be looked upon as a compilation of tried and tested recipes but that it may awaken an interest through its condensed scientific knowledge which will lead to deeper thought and a broader study of what we what to eat So recipes have included ingredient amounts for some time, but measurements were very inconsistent. Fanny not only included standardized measurements, but also included directions on how to make them. The most revolutionary aspect of this was the leveled measure, which was the practice of filling a measuring cup and then using a tool like a butter knife to remove the excess ingredients that surpassed the top of the cup. You'd think that wouldn't make a ton of difference, but in, in cooking, it's a little more forgiving, but in baking, that makes a huge difference. <laughs> Baking is and, magic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, quote is to measure a cupful. Put, uh, to measure a cupful, put in the ingredients by spoonfuls or from a scoop, round slightly, and level with a case knife. Care being taken not to shake the cup. And as well yeah. as correct measurements are absolutely necessary to ensure the best results. So she also went above and beyond just providing simple directions. She also explained the chemical process that occurred during cooking, the why of everything. There's a reason you seared things. It puts that delicious mailered reaction to work and beating your eggs whites into stiff peaks is what gets you the fluffiness of angel food cake. You didn't learn this stuff unless you went to school, but through this book, that knowledge became available to everybody and everyone wanted it much to the publisher's surprise. In her lifetime alone, it sold 360,000 copies whoa yeah oh and my just god this this woman in boston <laughs> and it was wanted across the entire country <laughs> yeah that was, wow so the book continues to be published still today um well over 100 years since its original 3000 copy run and well now it's known as the fanny farmer cookbook in honor of its author right the success of the cookbook allowed Fanny to leave the Boston school and instead open her own called Miss Farmer's School of Cookery in 1902. Her target audience was not the professionals like housekeepers and hired chefs like the Boston school had been, but instead housewives and gentlewomen. And I have some ads from the paper for her school. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Wow. Also, my cat says hello. She just snuck hello. in here. Cat. Down here chirping. What are you doing, cat? It's like you oh, can attend okay. an evening lecture for 25 cents. Yeah, that's... <laughs> like, I'm sure that's still obviously more back then than it is now, but damn. <laughs> yeah, Wow. And her, her her CV just says, for 12 years, demonstrator at the Boston Cooking School. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, a quote about Fanny Farmer says, She made it possible for any woman to put a meal on a table, even if she couldn't cook at all. There's nothing more democratizing than that. So she taught everything from plain cooking to fancy cooking, and the school was an all-around success, allowing her to buy land and build a house to support her parents, sisters, and other family members. Fanny believed that everyone should have access to good food, and it was part of this mission her own personal enjoyment that she was always seeking out new recipes. She'd go to restaurants to find new dishes. Sometimes she was able to get the recipe from the chef, but if not, she would take an order to go and take it to her school's laboratory where she would examine it and attempt to reproduce it. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. She's like, oh, you're not gonna fucking tell me? I'm gonna figure it out. Yeah, that is, it's like Fanny Farmer, food detective. Oh my god, that's so good. <laughs> but she still felt that she could bring more to the world, working on her next book, Food and Cookery for the Sick and Convalescent. This book included a complete diet and nutritional information for the ill or bedbound. This even included a full 30 pages on diabetes, which is like, this is like Whoa. 1906 or something. <laughs> Whoa, yeah. dang. 
So the work would lead her to be invited to one of the first women look invited to be one of the first women lecturers at Harvard Medical School and began teaching yeah. convalescent diet and nutrition to doctors and nurses. That is awesome. incredible. Wow. Right? <laughs> she felt very strongly that food played a large role in recovery and the happiness of those who were in need of care. Farmer understood possibly better than anyone else at the time the value of appearance, taste, and presentation of sick room food to the ill and mm -hmm. wasted people with poor appetites. She ranked these qualities over cost, nutritional value, and importance. That's not to say that nutrition wasn't important. It absolutely was, and she recognized that, unlike many at the time. The more she learned and experimented with recipes, the more convinced she became that there was a significant connection between diet and health. Which is like, well, yeah, but back then it was completely revolutionary. <laughs> it's like what you <laughs> eat actually affects how healthy you are. Right. Wow. Yeah. So the Boston Evening Transcript uh, published her lectures, which were picked up by newspapers nationwide. Farmer also lectured to nurses and dietitians and taught a course of dietary preparation at Harvard Medical School. She hoped that this work is what she would be most remembered for, but sadly, it's not talked about nearly as much as her directions on how to properly, you know, level measure. During the last seven years of her life, Fanny used a wheelchair, yet despite her immobility, she continued to write, invent recipes, and lecture, giving her last 10 days before she died. So Fanny passed away on January 16, 1915, at the age of 57, due to complications in relation to a stroke. Her school would carry on in her mission until 1944, when it would eventually close. Even though Fanny was a best-selling author and influential public speaker, the New York Times did not report on her death because it typically only used the obituary place for places for men. But they corrected this in 2018. Only then. Goodness. Only then. So her book continues to be published today with over 7 million copies sold. Yeah, it's a it's a big red book, right? The Fanny well, Farmer cookbook? I, I, yeah, I think it's changed appearance over time, but yeah, it's... Okay. That's the one like that I'm familiar editions. with. So. Whoa. Holy shit. That is so fucking cool. Yeah. So yeah, she's where I started with this whole thing. I got you. Yeah. Okay. So I'm okay. So I'm looking at, yeah, I'm looking at an old version of it. I remember seeing this and just for some reason, her name has always stuck with me because I think my grandma had one of these. <laughs> I think that's where I'm getting the red. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm mm. getting the red cover from. Totally. It <laughs> it was one of those things. Where it's like everybody had it. Yeah. Right next to, you know, like the Better Homes and Gardens and then Cookbook <laughs> yeah. and then like the Joy of Cooking Cookbook. Those were the yes. three that I remember. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's like... staple. <laughs> Dang. So as the World Wars commenced in the early mid 1900s, food gained a new meaning. They were, uh, sorry, food. What the hell did I write there? Cooking gained a new meaning. It was about thriftiness and preservation, rationing and efficiency. But after World War II, as men came home and women were expected then to be traditional housewives, a domestic and feminized ideal in the kitchen and cookbooks emerged, coinciding with the rise of industrialized canned and processed food. From a 1950 Betty Crocker's picture cookbook, quote, just as every carpenter must have certain tools for building a house, every woman should have the right tools for the fine art of cooking. Throughout the, these post-war cookbooks, it was clear that much of a woman's worth was determined by her husband's judgment of how how adequate she was as a mother, wife, or cook. I've got this uh, ad from the, around the time, which is totally not sexist at all. <laughs> oh, yes, I have seen this Hardy's ad. Oh, oh yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Oh, so. some of them from this time period are, are... We should actually do a piece on these ads yeah. from that time period. Because there are some great places online that collect them. And the one that I will never forget is a man who has his wife turned over his knee. And he's not about to spank her in the sexy kind of way. <laughs> it's in the, you didn't do the job in the house the way you were supposed to so now you're gonna get punished and i'm just like what the fuck what the fuck i forget what it was for i'll find it it's gonna bother oh me God. now because i, I, I vaguely remember I had, that one if i had to see it you all do <laughs> <laughs> so 
Yeah, for those at home, this ad says, women don't leave the kitchen. We all know a woman's Ugh. place is in the home, cooking a man a delicious meal. But if you are still enjoying the bachelor's life and don't have a little miss waiting on you, then come down to Hardy's for something sloppily, sloppy and hastily prepared. Oh, jeez. These things. God. So then, August 15th, 1912, Julia Child will be born. Well, today we immediately associate her with the love, her love of French cooking that had never been her original plan. In her 20s, she spent time meandering through secretarial jobs, and come 1941, she became really interested in helping with the war effort, despite neither of the two branches of the military that accepted women accepting her, they're turning her down because she was too tall at six foot two. Ugh. But that didn't stop her, and she would go on to work for the secret intelligence branch of what would become the CIA. It was through this career that she met her husband, Paul Child, and it was through him and his posting in Paris that she entered the famous Le Cordon Bleu cooking school. So while cooking had never been her plan, she did have some experience growing up in her mother's kitchen. Citing Fanny Farmer's The Boston Cooking School Cookbook was her mother's primary reference, and she cut her teeth on cooking pancakes, popovers, and fudge recipes. It's all connected. <laughs> so while at school, she met two other women, and the three would go on to publish Mastering the Art of French Cooking in 1961, the first cookbook to bring French cooking to the American public. From there, she became one of the most well-known chefs of our day. She, she became one of the first television chefs with her show, The French Chef, and spent the rest of her life up until her death in 2004, continuing to bring her love of cooking and no-nonsense methodology to the world. And the rest, well, that's, that's now. The way we learn to cook has changed. The explosion of popularity of food networks, which began in 1993, has only expanded the horizons of the general population all the more. Suddenly we have access to all manner of instructors and to learn about foods from all over the world. Many of these chefs walking in the footsteps of Julia have become some of the biggest culinary names in the industry. Everyone knows Gordon Ramsay, Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. And then came food blogging. So started mostly by stay-at-home moms looking for something to do or young people trying to tackle what they never learned growing up. Not only was the knowledge of, on how to cook now available to anyone and everyone, those same anyones and everyones could also share their knowledge and mishaps where once you needed a publisher or a broadcaster to speak to the world, now you just needed an internet connection. This would evolve to include YouTube channels. And now there's TikTok and Instagram. Cookbooks are in a strange space right now. When most recipes can be Googled, you, th you would think that the internet would be the go-to place for recipes. But it's many of these food bloggers that are now publishing some of the most successful cookbooks. Yep. And as much as we like to mock the food bloggers and their 5,000 word essays on each recipe, when you stop and think about it, it's kind <laughs> of amazing. Women that once upon a time wouldn't have had a place anywhere but in the kitchen now have a platform for their voices, stories, and knowledge. This is really no different than the space we've given television chefs for years or even just male chefs. Let's not forget that Anthony Bourdain's claim to fame was Kitchen Confidential, Interventures in the Culinary Underbelly, a book where he basically bitched about the food industry, talked about the nitty-gritty details and his own struggles with substance use, and he became famous as a chef for it. <laughs> Which yeah. I love Anthony yeah. Bourdain, don't get me wrong. <laughs> oh no, I do too. No, I do too. Like, But it's true. <laughs> yeah. And while we can whine and moan about the extra scrolling it takes to get to the recipes, you have to give credit where credit is due. It's all these food bloggers that popularized including pictures of every recipe, or including pictures of the different right. steps along the way. And, you know, along with video, which was never a thing before. Where once upon a time, this was the standard for a recipe. This uh, whole two lines for a cream cake. <laughs> <laughs> my god <laughs> this is what we get now full-blown instructions beautiful high-res pictures yeah. everything <laughs> and we get Tips, this for free comments yep. yeah comments so this didn't people work who were like no nope, this, this worked better. a little better yep yeah exactly i've definitely definitely done this that in, and, isn't it? and the whole family liked it better <laughs> yep. yeah yeah uh, it I find it so interesting too. Now, if you look at a cookbook, our brains have been so trained to expect those pictures. If you look at a cookbook with no pictures or very few pictures, you're like, no, 
Yeah. Uh-uh. Right. It's an immediate turnoff for me. I'm like, eh. <laughs> same. <laughs> hard, hard, hard same. Although I will say, and this is not a plug for anything, but the lovely Sola Awahi from formerly from Bon Appetit, who has a gorgeous cookbook out called Start Here. And it is 600 pages of pure joy. And there's Excellent. at least one picture on every single fucking page. It's amazing. It's really awesome. gorgeous. We get all those recipes for free now. And this isn't... And this isn't... Wow, I've like lost words. I can't speak anymore. <laughs> anyway, Words are we get hard. I'm not going to lie. And isn't that exactly what Fanny Farmer wanted for us? For anyone to have access to the means and knowledge to make something delicious. And yeah. I'm sure I will always go click the jump to recipe button or better yet print recipe but fuck it all the power to them every single one of them that takes the time to share their knowledge take all the pictures and make it accessible to most anyone that can google and if you still want to cry about it as food blogger deb perelman once said it's mostly women telling these stories congratulations you found a new way not particularly original way to say shut up and cook <laughs> which is like fair <laughs> points <laughs> let these women talk who cares I fucking love it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of a very condensed history of recipes. <laughs> Dang, that's so cool. That's real neat. Yeah, it was super interesting and just how that's evolved and especially how the role of like the gender roles kind of evolved with that and how for a while like it was kind of almost like our ball and chain of being tied to cooking that had to be our thing. Mm-hmm. But now it's almost a you know a freedom thing it's like your women are liberated to do what they want and talk about what they want if they want to cook fucking let them cook yeah yeah totally and if you're gonna tell me to fucking stay in the kitchen then you're not allowed to eat what i cook that's the only correct answer to that <laughs> yep yep um oh i have a couple more pictures of just some random cookbooks and stuff that I didn't really include. Hell yeah. You might find interesting. Cookbooks are, from my understanding, one of the hardest types of books to produce because of all of the pictures you have to take, all of the layouts that you have to do. Taking mm-hmm. those pictures takes fucking forever um, because it's this step, then it's this step, then it's, you know, and it depends on yeah. how how many of the steps are pictured and like one shoot might be one recipe and that's an entire day if you're lucky yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah no, oh be, look at this cook's oracle pickles and giant bold print yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love that uh but yeah it's, like, it's by super interesting. Like, I'm, i love serious eats i don't know if you I love. Oh yes, so good. yes. Which um, they're a food logger that focuses a lot on testing things and the science yeah. behind things. They will make a fucking steak ten thousand ways and tell you which one works best and most efficiently. And the I don't know if you've got the yeah. food lab cookbook they made. So fucking good. No, and again, I, like said, I haven't gotten that pictures. yet. Oh, I yeah, I'm gonna need to to add that to my. Oh, list because I really do love this. I love the Serious Eats website. This is like, I've learned a lot from here. Yes, absolutely. They're so good. They're like America's Test Kitchen in kind of a way where they're really good about breaking things down and not making you feel stupid. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. And I, and then, you know, the one thing I kind of love about a lot of the modern, like, chefs and stuff online, people who share this stuff on the blogs is. They're not afraid to share failures where it's like you watch the cooking network. It's like everything's perfect every time unless you're watching like Iron Chef or Top Chef or something. Right. Um, right. But like, you know, they're like, yeah, this is what I did. I totally fucked up. <laughs> this is what I did. <laughs> to fix it. And I appreciate that. Very human. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. So there you go. That's that's recipes in a nutshell. <laughs> that's so cool. Also, I'm going to, just as as the librarian in the room, I'm going to encourage people, if you have a library that has a digital collection and you're worried, because cookbooks are expensive, I highly recommend you go and you check out that digital cookbook on your computer or your tablet and then just take screenshots of things. Mm-hmm. It's 
one of the easiest ways to look at a cookbook and learn new things without having to go spend that 45 or $50 on a cookbook where you're like, I might use this once. Yeah, that's a good idea. I didn't even think about I've done that from, from the library. That makes yep. so much sense. I've done that a lot and it's been a nice experiment, especially in like when I was having to do an elimination diet a few years ago and yeah. couldn't figure out what I was supposed to do or what I was supposed to try. And the doctor just says, just do this as if it's real easy to just eliminate gluten out of your diet when you don't know how to do that. And you don't realize right. how much this crap is in this thing. And you're like, what the hell? And then you go and you look at these like specialty cookbooks. Sometimes the libraries have them. You never know. And um, yeah, you just take screenshots and then you can just try it out. It's really nice. That's cool. Yeah. My, my, um, his, my uh, knowledge as a chef has had a couple sudden crash courses in my life where I was dating a guy and then suddenly found he, out he was celiac. So suddenly I had to learn about gluten and what oh, it's in fucking yeah. everything, especially in like 2010. <laughs> oh my God. And anything that was gluten free was like a billion dollars. Exactly. And then, I did, then oh. the next guy, I did, one of the next guys I dated, he ended up being diabetic. So I had to learn about oh, that. Oh, wow. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. It's been. It's been an adventure. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's the book from Serious Eats I sent you there. Nice, nice. Yeah. Oh, I've definitely seen this. Yeah, I've definitely mm -hmm. seen this. It's giant. Um, I guess that's, I'm, that's, you know I guess what? that's the I'm, sub blog that yeah, the book is massive though. It's like six hundred. I am all pages. for it. No, I'm all for it. You put that one next to Sola's and you have like two tomes. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm hungry. I want pizza. I know. I know, right? Ugh. That's it for this week. Next week, we're back, and Hallie tells us about Nellie Bly, the scrappy young reporter who faked mental illness so that she could sneak her way into a mental hospital to find out the truth about the conditions and the people committed there. As always, links, pictures, and additional information can be found on our website at thehumanexception.com. Keep up with all things exceptional. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at The Human Exception. Have a story you want us to cover? Want to tell us that we're wrong? You just want to say hi? You can email us at thehumanexception at gmail.com. Keep on being exceptional, my humans, and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>